Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the CollectingCars.com podcast with Chris Harris and Edward Lovett. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Collecting Cars podcast. Today, with me, my usual partner in crime, Edward Lovett, and also David Clark, who is about as embedded in the world of old cars and old car racing as anyone on the planet. And, for me, most impressively, was the man who, back in the day, attempted to sell a car called the McLaren F1. And I and partly got him here today just to tell us all about that adventure, but also... Um, a broader conversation around old cars, driving, and, and the passion we have for those subjects. David, welcome to Gerardo & Co. Thank you very much. Coffee good? Thank you. Yeah, very good. Thank you. It's Max, yeah. isn't it? It's going yeah, to be good. Love it. Yes. <laughs> so, back in the early 90s, those of us that read the motoring media heard about this car, that Gordon Murray was designing the ultimate streetcar. Mm. And I remember seeing the first pictures of it, sort of 92, 93, the yeah. mules. Yeah. And then I remember... May's edition, May 94's edition of Car Magazine when they drove it, and the numbers even now just just trip off the tongue, £627,000 or whatever it was, and then the power figures and the acceleration. How on earth did you sell them? We were on the back of a global recession, and suddenly you've got this this piece of unobtainium that you've got to try and sell. How how did it work? Uh, Yeah, I I think a a lot of it was that, that people didn't really understand the car or the price of it in those days i mean today it's an insignificant uh the price of cars today but uh the the reason i did it i just loved the whole thing with gordon because i was friendly with some people at mclaren i just really really wanted to do the project so the whole lead up with gordon and the way he did everything was uh it just filled you with enthusiasm i i, I remember the kenwood people that um sort of came in every three months to uh, to bring these speakers in for the car. And Gordon had these old brass scales and, and he would put the speakers 
on the scales and you go, no, 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 they're too heavy. And they'd all go, oh. <laughs> 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 and one day, Gordon said, oh, the guys from Kenwood are coming in. I said, I've got to be there. Okay, so they came into his office and they developed this speaker, especially for the F1, without a magnet, which was mega, mega light. And they got extremely excited because it passed Gordon's test. You know, I think he was dressed in a poncho that day or something. And uh, so a lot of that was the sort of fun of it. And, you know, just the the way, like, just developing the uh, windscreen wiper uh, was done in a fairly archaic way. Because uh, the first time, you know, they developed a road car. And basically everyone was left to their own devices there. So it was like a bit of a boys club because uh, it wasn't connected directly to the uh, Grand Prix uh, factories. So, so how many w- were there supposed to be built? Ah. Was it, was it supposed to be an unlimited run, or was it always going to be, this is the number we're building? Okay, well, someone decided uh, they would build a limited run of 350. Um, of which they built? So, yeah, 122, was it? 126, yeah. So the they first, st- have they still got the chassis numbers hanging around a bit Ooh, like continua- JLR? Continua- no, 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 are they going to start? A continuation no. F1. Yeah. No, sadly, boys, no. Um, They'll appear. Because if anyone would know about it, David, you yeah, would. They're not, uh, they're not available. Um, could be in the book. Uh, were you... Were you the, how um, long before they delivered a car had you started working with them? Ooh, so were you responsible for the sale yeah. of the first car? Yeah, around, well, a lot of the first cars were ordered. You know, the, the thing all started in Monaco, where they presented the car, which was not a car in any way, shape, or form. Was that 93 or 92? 92, I think yeah, it was, yeah. which was not a car in any way, shape, or form. It was just a, a, an Ultima with a yeah. bit of old plastic, but everyone thought it was marvellous. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, people, you know what it's like, even in those days, a few people ordered one. Um, not like today where 100 people go, oh, I've got to have two and all yeah. that sort of stuff. How many people, sort of 20 people, do you think? Yeah, are? maybe not that. So then it became, so I think the first thing I said uh, when I got there was, you know, the first thing we need to do is get out of 350 engines, uh, to which certain people said, no, 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 no. I said, well, yes, yes, because you're never going to sell 350 cars, not in your lifetime anyway. Um, probably would today, but... Um, so the negotiation out of the engines was became quite a big thing, and because BMW had tooled up, had they to build? Absolutely, yeah. So it it really sort of culminated. So they still got some bits left over. No, I bought them all. <laughs> <laughs> it was the most weirdest thing. One of the guys who I knew from the day rang up and said, "Oh, they've asked me to call you and see if you want to buy the parts." I said. Okay, uh, you authorised to sell them. He said, yeah, I'm still at BMW. Oh, okay, fine. Can you make an offer? Well, okay. So I did. So they called me the next day and said, that's okay, fine. Uh, we'll send you the invoice. I mean, thousands of parts. And I said, is that delivered? They said, yes. So a big truck arrived with an enormous amount of parts. So I've still got them. You're joking. No, I'm not. That is amazing. Yeah, what have you, what have you got? Have you got, a, have you got a block or have you got... Yep, got all that. And you're just, oh, you're waiting. Yeah. You're waiting. Yeah, yeah. It's for a rainy day, I suppose, yeah. I can't leave it too long. What, but, um, what a pension. Uh, yeah. Do you ever go and look in it or not? Yeah, or I do, yeah. Is it, are they in a room now or something? Or yeah, you uh, can and, see, the, and these road car parts, not race car parts. And some race car parts, yeah. but there's very little difference. Yeah. There's very little difference. 
Yeah, well, you need a few more Rowans owning the cars because yeah, well, then, yeah, then you'd yeah, need yeah. a lot more repairs. The trouble is, the engines are so amazing. Um, yeah. You know, I remember going with Gordon to see Paul Rocher, and uh, Gordon said, well, the first thing we have to do is drink some beer. I went, okay. All right, so this is awful stuff called vice beer. Well, I didn't like it anyway. Cloudy beer. Yeah. So we had about six pints of that. And then we did this whole thing with Russia, and I flew back to Gordon. I said, Gordon, this is never going to happen. Yeah, well, I said, no, no, no. It has to go before the board. This is a big, big thing. Anyway, it happened uh, quite quickly with Carbfeld and Russia, and the engine just evolved. Uh, it could never happen today, I don't think, in the way that it did. But um, And it was great the first, uh, when they tested the engine, it was an M5 estate car, which BMW still have. Brilliant. So, so oh, somewhere that, there is an that M5. Is, that is the Chris Harris dream car. Mm, that's it, yeah. I've driven it. It's an outrageous thing. But, uh, so that was the first sort of... But it didn't really need any development. Sorry, I'm nursing a bit of a trouser tent here after hearing <laughs> that. That is, that is the dream car, isn't it? Yeah. God almighty. Yeah. Um, Do you want to go and relieve yourself? Or I you mean, that is... <laughs> but they, I mean, they must have made a loss, wasn't they, BMW, doing that? I think, you know, in the end... And McLaren didn't. I mean, they were, I think when I went there, on a big loss. But um, part of the engine negotiation, we encompassed the touring car program. So we did the BMW uh, touring car program, which helped. So so we basically got out of the engines. um, And there are hardly any engines at all. Really? Yeah. I know someone that's got two, but... um, So, so So how many blocks have you got? Can't remember now. But I've got two engines. You've got two engines. Yes. yes. <laughs> and you sold the car, didn't you? Because you had the Harrods, Harrods car. car yeah. you had the, which was the one that everyone wanted. Yeah, I, sold, I had it for 18 years. Uh, I, I just don't think anyone will ever, ever use a McLaren like that ever again. Right. I don't think. Because I used it all the time. You know, when I mean, I'd pitch up here in it. Or, uh, but I used to love the... I used to love the remarks of people, you know, the sort of pilgrimage to Le Mans. You get all these... People, I was dri- I was driving to McLaren actually, and it was quite wet, and was driving out of just out of Knightsbridge, and there was this transit van, and he kept hooting me, and oh, oh God, and I had sliding windows on mine, and this guy went, mate, that's a dog's bollocks. I was there, I was there at Le Mans. I said, great, that's terrific, <laughs> thank you, mate. Uh, yeah, so the stuff, yeah, I loved it. Do you miss yeah. it? Yeah, enormously, but I've had my time, you know. Yeah. And I don't want to drive it. He called me the other day. He said, you know, you can always drive it. I don't want to drive it again. Yeah, it's a bit like the ex-girlfriend, isn't it? Yeah, I just don't want to do it. I've done it. I've loved it. Um, I didn't really have anything done to it hardly over 18 years. Hardly touched the car over 18 years. So the sales process, because there are some apocryphal tales about how this worked and some of the inverted commas test drives that people were invited Mm. on. So you, you went to Woking... Yeah, and said I quite like to buy one of these. Um, did you show them what was going on? How advanced the yeah. project was? Did you show them a tub? Because obviously, it was in the in the media. We were aware that they were using technologies that were new to road cars, <laughs> but none of us had any idea quite how advanced the thing was. Mm. I don't think behind mm. the scenes because they drip fed some of the information, but not all of it. There was a a certain person at McLaren had a paranoia about uh, journalists. Um, <laughs> And he didn't interfere that much, but he interfered with the uh, journalists. Um, 
So it's very difficult getting, you know, people along. I mean, I had the total opposite um, uh, thing is get them all the friendly journalists along. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like with Jeremy, I mean, they, because, you know, Tiff tested the car. The Tiff film at Goodwood yeah. was eye-opening really yeah, it, was. it was cool wasn't it yeah, yeah. just this thing bucking and weaving this sense of this bloke hanging on for dear life because yes. it's so much power yes was that even now sticks with me yeah film. he did a cool job there I think mm. Chris but uh, personally I thought we'd have should have had a lot of journalists there in a more of a friendly environment do you think you'd have sold more cars um I just think it would have been a warmer a warmer thing that's all and I think it would have got maybe some better uh media coverage yeah um is it true and we can cut this out if you want to is it true that some of mr palmer's test drives were quite interesting for earlier potential customers i think that's true <laughs> um I, mean, I have some sympathy if you're given a car with 620 something horsepower to demonstrate yeah. to a punter you're probably going to use some of that power mm. aren't you and it might be quite alarming for that punter because they're probably not used to it yeah, um, I think there are two Jonathans, to be honest. <laughs> uh, there's the guy in the car, the guy not in the car, and as he will freely admit, the, one of the biggest reasons he bought a helicopter was because of the way he drives on the road and everything. Uh, and he'll admit that. And uh, So there was, um, I, I think, one of the best things to be honest, in that vein was... Um, we decided to do a sort of little world tour, but mainly Japan. So we sent the car to Japan. Because that's back end of the Japanese economy booming, wasn't it? Yeah, they, had, they were buying all the cars. Yeah, so I thought we'd send it to Japan, um, and it would be at Suzuka, and people could see it at Suzuka, and Bernie was going to let us take the car around the circuit, which he also did at Adelaide. Um, was Ayrton alive at this point? Hmm? Was Ayrton still alive at this point? He was, wasn't he? Yeah. He was. Uh, or was he not? No, maybe he just... No. Is it 25, it's 25 years today. Yeah. Yeah, so it was May 94, and the car was launched around then, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so Gordon and I went, so anyway, the car had arrived, a few of the guys said, yeah, the car's here. And so Gordon and I, we arrived at Suzuka, and we were just sort of walking up a, like a bit of a hill, and... You know, the further we walked, the more we could sort of see the car. And I said to Gordon, I said, car looks a bit strange. Yeah, well, it does really, doesn't it? The further we oh, well, what's happened? Someone's crashed it. I went, you're right. So anyway, the, it was fairly badly damaged. <coughs> so what happened was Ron decided who cannot drive to save his life. Um, <laughs> strangely, uh took Gerhard round the circuit, um, had a big off, uh, no helmets. Gerhard had an egg on his head, <laughs> so there was a possibility he couldn't do the Grand Prix because couldn't get Because his team principal had offed him. Mm. So I, I, never, I couldn't help myself. So that evening, Ron decides to go on the, on the full sort of defend myself thing so there was Gerhard, a whole lot of, there's about 20 people there, and they were having a go at Ron. He said, look, I haven't said this before because of the product, but uh, what happened is that Gerhard pulled the handbrake on. I thought, I can't help myself. I said, you know what, Ron? The handbrake doesn't work on the car. <laughs> 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 
which, uh, which it didn't, which it didn't. So we got it repaired, flew it back, flew it back out to Japan and did some very unusual uh, demonstrations. We did at one at three in the morning in a sort of pleasure park, fairground, um, where the guy wanted the car driven around. We didn't see him. Uh, he just wanted to observe, but we weren't to meet him. Um, and then we had to drive the car all around the place and... Uh, because he lurked on the 14th floor and watched it. What, whatever, yeah. So he felt he loved it and he'd have to have one. But um, And he did have one. He, and he did he have did. one. So how many cars sold to Japan? I think in the end, probably about 12 cars. Okay. Yeah, Biggest but, single market or the Middle East was bigger? Well, no, the Middle East was nothing. Back then it wasn't? No. There was a couple Q8, of... Q8, there was money. There was a couple of uh, uh, cars, but they were kept uh, in Europe. Um, Brunei must have been one of the biggest single markets. That's another thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was a uh, quite a big market, uh, Brunei. That was an experience. Um, <laughs> but, uh, Family podcast, David. <laughs> yeah. um, just a nice little story about uh, Brunei. Was, well, most of the driving was done at about two in the morning. They had this enormous area called Gerardong Park with millions of fairy lights on everything. It's a bit like Michael Jackson on acid. Um, and they have about 12 houses, all numbered. You know, house one, house two, or, uh, and you know, there were all various bits of entertainment in the uh, houses, but all the driving was done. So cars would be delivered to this house for driving or that house for driving. And, you know, and lots of cars would arrive because you know, there's over 3,000 cars there. Um, so that the excitement was really short-lived um, because the next day another lot of cars arrived. Um, it sounds like a sort of Truman Show almost. Well, it, well, it sort of it sort of it was, but um, but we stayed in this sort of hotel they had there, and uh, but the drink was was fantastic because there was Gordon, myself, and Crichton Brown, um, and the waiters were were fabulous because when we wanted beer. They would have a big teapot, okay, that was full of cold beer, but they'd rush in the restaurant going, oh, oh, it's so hot. Oh, oh, oh it's so hot. <laughs> and that was, that was our cold beer. So they'd pour this beer out, and uh, that was great, actually. Yeah, it was great. Um, yeah, anyway. Um, so what's, which single chassis did you sell the most times? Because you must have you've been involved. You're still the go-to man. For an F1, aren't you? If someone wants to know where an F1 is, I think you'd be the first person someone would phone. Yeah, I know where a few are, but I think other people, like, always have come into it and yeah. created an interest. And and there's a lot of really good people around with enormous knowledge. Yeah. Extraordinary knowledge of them. So, uh, But you must have sold the same car two or three times. I think I have, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I have. I mean, at one point, when I, in, when I was in the Mews, just off Belgrave Square, I had a... M14, M19, two road car F1s, GTR, and an LM. Um, and what was the cheapest they got to? So sort of late 90s, when people were just scared the, of the cost of them? and Cheapest they got to was about 350. Sorry, can you just say that again? 350,000 pounds. From a McLaren F1? Mm. Well, they're only a smidge over that now. What are, a, yeah, a a bit, what are they now? What are they now? What are they now? I think a bit more than that. 
Are they 10 million quid now? Or are they? I think they're more, more actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I 18 plus dollars. Yeah. And you could have bought with 350,000 yeah. pounds. You could have done. I, yeah. I, I still remember walking um, up Park Lane as a kid. With the one in the showroom. Yeah, in the one in the showroom. And, and that car was sold to a young guy from Singapore. Uh, oh, that's in the UK. Yeah, no, but it, oh. the one correct, the one that yeah. was in the UK in the yeah. showroom on yeah. Park Lane that was sold to a young guy who was a student at the time yeah. um, in Ascot from Singapore, and then he he stuck it in the RM auction. That's right, uh, and I That's think it right. sold what six hundred eighty. Was that no? Was it six hundred eighty thousand? He was great, wasn't yeah. he? He came up to me drunk. Uh, he's Lucky from uh, he's from Houston, and uh, he said, "I'm going to buy this car, but I feel I need two. Uh, and I was standing with a few people. And I said. Have as many as you want. I said, <laughs> and anyway, he sat down and just absolutely. I mean, he raised the bid. I can't remember how much, by an enormous amount. Shouted, you know, and uh, I think RM were pretty worried about him. Anyway, he paid, and he did end up having two. He did end up having. Uh, he bought another one as well. So you uh, could have bought McLaren F1. For less money than a 911R is going for now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, it takes a moment for that to sink in that they that they got that cheap. What <laughs> should, drove... that, should that be encouraging for 911R owners? No, because <laughs> that, that, that is an overinflated market still. But the, what drove the price down so far? I know market conditions, global economy, all that sort of stuff. But were people just scared of it? I, I, I think people were scared of the of the price. Um, they were scared of the marketplace. Um, and yeah, a couple of them got bought for 350 and then sort of put away for a while. Just imagine if you were the bloke that sold. I mean, people take the mickey out of me for selling a 99, uh, sorry, a 993 GT2 for 150 grand, which mm. is obviously smarts. And it's a regular laughing point over coffee um, for my friends. But that's, a, that's different gravy. 350 for an F1. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think, you know, I'm not saying I knew it was going to be what it is today. But I always felt that it was going to be an iconic car. You just look at points in history, don't you, about what's significant? And it mm. was always going to be the modern 250 GTO. Because so. it, it, had, it had the narrative, the idea of McLaren, a racing entity, handing the greatest F1 designer of, of his era a blank piece of paper and saying, make a road car. So you've got the story. Then you've got the racing car. So it goes off and wins mm. everything. So it, that's a really important part of the story. Yeah, that was... That was a really important time, was the racing. I think that really boosted the sale of the car. Do you did, you, did? did you sell the race cars as well? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. We, we sort of devised a, a package. I don't know about you. I'm, I quite like a package. You know, I don't want one guy doing this, another guy doing that. So we had this whole package, which, you know, included, you know, a spares truck and technical support and, you know, I mean, a lot. So um, I think that helped the sale of the car. And sort of tongue-in-cheek, I decided you couldn't buy a race car unless you bought a road car. Um, Did you manage to get that through? Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Yeah. Um, you can't have this one unless you have one of those. Yeah. Well, I tried to put it in a different way, but uh, <laughs> it ended up <laughs> David as started the, the modern Ferrari uh, situation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and on that note, we're going to end part one there. And we're going to come back. Um, and um, and hopefully I can put on my rose-tinted spectacles and remember the first time I ever sat in a McLaren F1, which was when I was much younger, more hirsute, and, um, and David took me for a ride in one at the Long Cross Test Track. See you in a minute. Collecting cars. The safe, smart and simple way to buy and sell collectible cars. An online auction platform for the UK and Europe. Follow us on Instagram at Collecting Cars and also CollectingCars.com. The CollectingCars.com podcast with Chris Harris and Edward Lovett. Welcome back to part two of this Collecting Cars podcast with myself, Chris Harris, that's at Harris Monkey, Edward Lovett at Edward Lovett and David Clark at MacF1. We were discussing a minute ago that not many people can carry off that handle. That's like calling yourself Jesus, really, isn't it, David? But you you can do it because you were so involved in the project. We were going to meander off and talk about other things, but before we do that, we've still got some F1 stuff to chat about. Give us, please, a customer anecdote. Go on. A a collection, a whoopsie, or something that made you giggle at the time. I I think one person that's very at the forefront of my mind, um, that uh, I, I met this guy who was a very, very sort of softly spoken guy, not from the UK, um, that said he was interested uh, in the F1. And uh, anyway, came to the factory and we gave him the whole sort of sales pitch and everything else. And uh, he said, oh, thank you very, very much. A very gentle guy. And he left. And uh, Crichton Brown, who's no longer with us, sadly, but Crichton thought everyone was marvellous. And... uh, he said, oh, I think he'd buy a car. Yeah, absolutely, Crichton. Write a letter to him, because he loved writing letters. Uh, <laughs> uh, any car, he'd write a letter, Crichton. And, uh, anyway, a couple of weeks later, this guy said, he said, oh, could I come down again? I said, yeah, 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 fine. And uh, Anyway, uh, he sat in the office, and uh, he said, look, he, he said, you know, uh, my father, when I was at Cambridge, he bought me a house. So I have a house in Cambridge. Um, and to buy this car, which I want, because... I love it so much. You know, the only way I can do it is to sell the house. I said, well, you better do that. I've got an estate agent. I said, get on the phone and sell it. And he did. Okay, and that's how he bought the, ha- that's how he bought the car. Uh, he sold his house? Yeah, he sold, he, well, he sold a house a that house. he had in Cambridge to buy the car. And uh, That was probably a good decision. It, it was, yeah. Do you reckon that house is worth... 12 million quid. So he's done, he's done a good deal there. But he bought it because he loved it, so, uh, uh, which was good. But we, we had a, um, a quite an unusual customer from Germany that um, 
uh, he used to have these uh, points on the uh, on the autobahn, and every month he would test the car for, and he'd have acceleration and top speed in gears. And if it didn't comply to the actual figures of when he bought the car, he would come back and you know, so this whole thing went on, which didn't really do much for Gordon. Um, <laughs> Uh, anyway, one day he went in the mountain and, uh, and uh, rang me and started shouting and, you know, I'm so embarrassed and this is ridiculous and I want to send the car back and get rid of it. I said, well, okay, uh, what's the problem? He said, well, the car won't start. Uh, I said, well, look, you know, I'm not saying you've done this, but sometimes when you get out of the car and go across this passenger seat, if your foot goes under the dashboard... There's a little red, uh, a little cutout button there, uh, to which he abused me and said, "Don't call me an idiot." And don't do I said, "Okay, well, I won't, I won't say anything else. I'll send a helicopter to pick you up, take you where you're going." The only thing is, I said, "If you have done what you've done, which I'm sure you haven't," uh, I said, "You pay for the helicopter, of course." But it's not a question. I said, "Okay, fine." So we sent uh, a couple of guys there. I said, look, the first thing you do, you know... He's definitely kicked it. Yeah. I said, just land. Don't look at the button before you go. Fly him off, okay? And then uh, let's have a look at it. So they called me up and said, yeah, yeah, he'd kicked the button. I said, okay, that's fine. And he... Because then he was upset because he was at this sort of resort in the mountain and wanted his car, um, which he eventually got, but uh, and kept the car. To be fair to him, uh, for a long, 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 long time. Was this the? Uh, there was a story that used to go around that someone was complaining about a noise in their car at two hundred odd miles an hour on the autobahn. Mm. It was him, was That's it? Him. He plugged it in and said it was oh, yeah, 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 hitting two hundred and thirty yeah, 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 yeah. miles an hour regularly on the autobahn. Oh, I think I know who this is. Mm? Yeah, okay. I think I know who this person is. Yeah, I've, got, I've worked it out now. Yeah. That's, um, uh, well. I mean, it had performance unlike anything else, though, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. That sense that it could, it could accelerate from 100 to 200 miles an hour in 20 seconds, yeah. which was a number that always stuck in my head. Now, people that consume modern motoring media just don't know how lucky they are, because even though there's a lot of stuff on YouTube that is <clears throat> not worth watching, there is an amazing archive of, of stuff now. You, you know, if you want to go and see what a Miura looks and sounds like, you can. You couldn't in our day, no. could you? You had to read you know, a Doug Blaine or a Steve Cropley, or you had to read these people yeah. describe what it was like. There was no video. Yeah. And that was what it was like for me in an F1. Then I was a sort of road test ashtray, or whatever I was called at Autocar Magazine in the late 90s. And I'd never, I'd, I'd seen one F1 at a motor show. And I was down at Long Cross, or Chobham as we called it, which is where we'd go and do cheap skids and fire M3s sideways to make exciting cover shots. And David's crew were still servicing F1s. They, the sales were gone, weren't they then? Mm. You'd done them, but they'd come back for a service. You'd PDI them there, wouldn't you? You'd yeah, that's right. Yeah, take them around everything there. Yeah. Everything, yeah. Which, looking back, was a preposterous place to do it because there was so much stuff to hit. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Just trees and obstacles everywhere. Yes. And I've, I've always felt that, that if you don't ask, you don't get in life. And I'd never been in one of these things and I didn't know David at all. I just, I just saw a bloke with an F1 and thought, well, you've got to ask, haven't you? So I went over and said please, can I have a ride in your F1? And he very kindly went, yeah, okay. And he, I was, I don't know, 22, 23. And he took me out in the thing. And we went, I remember him accelerating down the back straight. And everything that I'd read about this car was very powerful. I'd read Bulgin write about it. I'd read all my favourite writers had written very emotive words about this thing. And particularly the noise it made. 
noise is a very interesting thing as a journalist because you can describe it in a quite an emotional way and you can really get across the sense of the noise and the volume and the qualities of it but when he accelerated this inlet track that goes over your head when you're in the, one of the side seats the passenger seats it, this induction hammer that you get as the 12 cylinders go is is unlike any other car noise yeah, it, it is, is extraordinary yeah, when you open the taps mm. up i remember thinking right okay this is even better than expected yes. i couldn't believe yes. what it was like yes. so uh, belatedly thank you because yeah. it, it, it just made me realize how special the car was yeah. Still, I, I, I still get that feeling today when I, I drove one uh, recently, a road car, and I, I you know, I, I don't know any of us, you know, how a buzz we get in a car for a long time. We you know we see a car and we get a real buzz out of driving it, but to have that sort of buzz throughout your life for a long period, I, mean, I still get that, yeah. even though I've driven a lot of F1s. And uh, yeah. I think if you become tired of the F1 experience, you probably time to peg out yeah, <laughs> hand definitely. over your atoms to someone else <laughs> um, but I, it, it also informed in me the sense that if I'm in something flash that doesn't belong to me and a little person comes up and says can I have a ride in it if I've got a minute I always will because that really that that, that experience affected me and I thought god that I would never have got in that car if you hadn't said yes yeah. and so now if someone stops me and says can I have a go in your car Obviously, the world's a bit different now. As long as I don't come across as being too sinister, yeah. then I'll take them for a ride in it. Because I just think there's no substitute for actually being in it. You can yeah. have all the POV videos you want, all the YouTube videos, but you'll ne- it's never quite the same as being in it. I think it was important for me. I was never too precious with it. So, like, we went for a, a ride, but we used to do that to a lot of people. And uh, Or if you were a customer, you know, you, you might sort of have the car for a couple of hours or something, which I think at the time was quite unusual uh, thing to do. It's like having them a loaded gun. Yeah, but I think people, uh, you know, people like that. I think they like the, you know, people became... I think we were talking about earlier, it's the biggest shame of today that, you know, these amazing cars that are built aren't used. Yeah. They're sort of, they're they're treasured. That's right. I mean, there are some people, you know, the George Harrison thing was... uh, uh, a fantastic thing and because you know everyone was invited just to come to the factory whenever they want mainly to see their car being built um was i think a, a great thing and, and you know and george he was there every week every week he's come down with you oh yeah every week he'd come and he was really into the whole thing and for the color oh, <laughs> he rang me up he said oh i'm not sure about the color uh, I said, okay, George. Um, he said, well... What have you gone for? Well, he said, look, I could ask you, could, could you go and buy some aubergines? Um, but don't buy the aubergines all at one shop because they might all be the same. I said, okay. Weird conversations you thought you'd never have in your life. Yeah. So we got all these aubergines and I never said to one of the guys, I said, look, we need to polish the aubergines. Okay, and we'll have to the, the aubergines all lined up. And he came down, everyone loved him, obviously, but, uh, and he came down and chose his specific aubergine colour, which is the colour of his car. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, and the colour of the paint was exactly... So that's aubergine. What was... Rowan Atkins' car was, a, was more red in it? Was yeah, there? more, more burgundy. burgundy. Yeah. yeah. More burgundy in it, yeah. I found, I found the, the fact that there was this 
such a familiar face as Ron Atkinson knocking about in one of these things utterly captivated me as a child as well. Right, he drove teenager. it all the time. Yeah, he used it I all loved the time. it. I just yeah. loved the idea that he would just be out and about driving yeah, these people on a tanium. Again, it just totally captivated me. Yeah, absolutely. But that's a great thing, isn't it? Yeah. You know, and, I mean, a guy in Japan did 20,000 miles in one, which is not easy in Japan. Was it a pair of single Vanos M36s, Siamese together or not? I, I think it is was. Is that unfair? Um, I don't know that, uh, but I think conceptually that's the way. I think that's the way it started. It's a bit, I think the engine's a bit more than that, but I think the original sort of idea was that, um, and it is. And you know that whole Vanos system they had on was amazing because when you do the demo, um, you know you can go through every gear on tickover, um, and then you can just accelerate to two hundred and thirty mile an hour if you wish. Which was quite an impressive part of the demo. Yeah. I'd say so myself. The talk but, uh, and the breadth of it. Yeah. I right. did it recently, but... I'm going to just go off at a tangent slightly yeah. here quickly. Um, racing cars. Mm. Um, you're, every time I go to a race meeting, certainly this continent, um, you're there. Uh, a historic meeting, classic mm. cars. You do, you do lots of racing. You, 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 know, you own some lovely cars and, and drive them wonderfully. What's your thoughts on real versus replica? Um, and, and increasingly we're, we're, we feel that some of the cars that are out there aren't the actual cars. Um, I, I, have, I have a particular view on this, and I'm fascinated on your view on it. Um, I have, well, it takes me, but I'm quite friendly with Max Mosley, and I remember when he started looking at the historic side of it, and he, he said that, uh, that these replicas should be allowed and the reason and that wasn't with a lack of knowledge I think the reason he said that was because he felt over a period of time that the cars were going to become too expensive uh, so people would maybe want to race whatever one wants to call them uh, let's say replicas and and I think in a lot of ways uh, he, he was right um, obviously the ultimate replica owner is the man that owns the original car that's the key point, isn't it? Well, it is in a way, um, and I'm not saying it hasn't got out of control, but I, but I think an important thing with a replica is to admit in what you have, which which I think is in the spirit of historic racing, because I'm not wanting to win world championships. Okay, so I think as long as you say that it is and it is correct, then that's the organizer's choice. Do either take that or not take that. I think the argument of which a lot of people have um, of you know some of the races should be only for correct cars. It's a really it's a really difficult area. I think and to, who says that these are unquestionably please, it? correct? Yeah. So I think I think a lot of it sort of comes to prominence because of the driving of some of them by some people. I mean, a lot of people in historic racing think historic racing should be for historic people. Um, I'm not one of them. But I think there needs to be, with a younger person, maybe some degree of respect, which is not easy. So it's a really big subject, Chris. But I'll talk about it. But it's sort of, you know, for me, I, I, I think there should be, you know, some known as correct cars and some cars you know that are not correct cars um but i think to this sort of idealistic uh 
thing that a lot of people have for the cars to be what they were in their day, personally, I think it's a pipe dream. It's also impossible with modern metallurgy, materials. Exactly. You can't make the same engine because the metal you buy is better than the metal you had then. Exactly. My, My view on it, whether it's valid or not, is that if you extrapolate some of these situations out to their logical conclusions, if you only have, if you only allow real cars, inverted commas, very soon you'll end up with no cars. Correct. And, and I want to see cars being driven. So then I ask myself sort of rhetorical questions. Would it, does it matter to me if Frank Stipler is, is fully sideways in a 64 GTO through Magic and I'm watching it and I'm thinking that's one of the best things I've ever seen. If I stop that and freeze frame it Matrix style, does it matter to me that the car's real or not at that moment? It doesn't, actually. I'm just watching a bloke mm. sideways mm. in the most beautiful car that's making an amazing noise that's just making my day better. I mm. don't give a monkeys. Mm. Actually, if I, if I was to care about the value of the car and whether it was real or not, it's in a macabre way because it makes the, the inevitable incident when it does happen more... <gasps> God, he's crashed it and it's worth... 25 million quid it always gets mm. suffix doesn't it? It, mm. it if you see a shunt in a historic race yeah the, it's, the, it's, it's never it's, it's drama it's dramatic yeah oh yeah. god that's worth as much as a street well mm. th- that's not a reason to want the real cars to be raced mm. and I just I just think that if you own the real car and it's worth X you should have the right to build an absolute replica of the car the FIA should give it a separate set of papers and a very particular identity with a big R on it or something and as long as that car comes out and we get to see it and hear it and enjoy it I'm happy I really am I think that where it becomes difficult is if we're sitting next to a real lightweight E-type correct there's not many of those how many yeah. of those are there seven yeah and um, and that's worth what six seven million mm. pounds um, if you turn up in that and you get nerfed by a bloke who's in a brilliant nuts and bolts replica of a car that's worth 300 grand that doesn't seem fair to me that doesn't seem like that. that's mm. I'm not I don't know how those two... I don't know how they operate together on a grid. That's the bit I find confusing. Yeah. It's still not the answer, though, is it? No. (laughs) No. See, this is the big thing. Is there there an answer? I don't think there really, to be honest with you, is an answer. Um, Well, it's evolving, as we speak, isn't it, at the moment? Yeah, I think it is a bit. Yeah. I, I, I think it needs maybe sometimes at historic events the right people to give driver briefings or whatever and I don't think there is currently anyone doing that correctly or the way I feel it should be done I mean I think if you get maybe you know I don't know the likes of Richard Atwood or Brian Redman who I drove with is a wonderful guy I mean greatest living Lancastrian yeah Brian yeah what a fantastic guy he'd never driven a 904 Porsche are you not Never driven one before. Well, the poor bloke got squeezed into a 917, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. He got, so he got in the 904. He said, three pedals, steering wheel, gear stick, good enough for me. Thank you. That was it. Until he came back to drive it. Uh, he was brilliant, actually. And, but his, I think his he, book, there's a plug out to his book. His book is fantastic. Yes. If you like motorsport stories. Absolutely. From your 60s and 70s heroes, buy yeah. Brian Redmond's book. But I think it needs not a draconian attitude. I think it needs... Very, you know, varying people with respect, you know, the people respect to say to a lot of the people, this is what we're trying to achieve. Uh, and I, I think, you know, that's important. The mindset's interesting, isn't it? Because Goodwood, I use Goodwood as an example, but oh, okay. people, people think Goodwood is 
So at racing, it isn't. It's just, it's, just, it's a part of it. There's a, there are many, many meetings. But Goodwood seems to be the one that makes the headlines for all the right and the wrong reasons. But there's a sense that actually you're not there to race. You're there to put on a show. That's quite a particular I don't uh, but mindset. Goodwood's, Goodwood's an example, though, because it's so high profile. That, yeah. that, you know, they, talk, they, they talk about the TT grid and it being worth so much money. But the, the, those values are attributed to cars that may not be real. But when you go and do a Peter Auto yeah. race, you know, there's just a load of guys gone down to race old cars. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. there's some real cars, there's yeah. some fake cars, but it's just about racing, isn't it? Yeah. It's not really about the value and if you're racing against something real. Yeah, in, I agree in, with qu- that. in quite the same way as, no, as Goodwood. I, I agree with that. I, I, I think, I suppose Goodwood's quite a big subject, but, you know, having come away from the members' meeting, thinking a lot of the spirit of Goodwood is lost. Um, you know, I think personally they need to look at that. You know, this whole draconian uh, uh, new scrutineering and just sending everyone to the back of the grid, I personally don't think it's in the spirit of uh, historic motorsport. Yeah. I think what you should do is say, look, you know, this is not correct. Let's work it out. Next time you come, if you come, you know, correct it. For me, that's in the spirit. So I think... I think the replica real car is a never-ending conversation, but I think the most important thing we're talking about is the spirit. And if you want to build yourself an E-Type or a Cobra, build what is deemed to be a correct car. And that is all to do with the spirit. I mean... You know what you're doing. Yeah, you know what you're doing. It's like when you play golf. If you want to start moving balls or a ball's jumped out of the water amazingly and and got on the fairway, if that's the way you want to do it, well, you know, that's up to you. But really, the spirit of golf is should be really the same as in uh, historic motorsport. You've um, got, this is and finally, I'm going to give you one circuit, one car, and 50 litres of fuel, mm-hmm. and that's the last time you'll ever drive a motor car. Where do you go? What's the car? It's, of course, everything for me comes back to, 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 to the F1, but it also, a big thing for me was driving Wolfgang Friedrich's Project 212 at Le Mans. That was, uh, he didn't quite understand what goose pimples were and why I had them. Um, but it was a really special moment uh, for me. And uh, yeah, and driving the Harrods car at Le Mans, even though in, in a demo, was a special thing. And uh, I think if you're really into the spirit of it, these are the things that sort of, silly to some people, uh, but these are the things... It needs to have a narrative, there needs to be some meaning behind it. Correct, yes. You wouldn't just go to Landau in your 904 and pump it out. (laughs) No. You you might. (laughs) I probably would, yeah. But also I think the originality before, I I had my BRM for 15 years and uh, I always remember, I I think I did every Monaco historic uh, and it was completely original apart from Hall and Hall making it raceworthy and I remember uh, well, several years ago um, I saw a guy getting my car in the paddock at Monaco and I was with Mark getting uh, in it yeah that works with me I said Mark just go and get the guy out of the car <laughs> he said David I said no don't start arguing with me I don't care who get the guy out of the car he said and it went on and on I said Mark get the guy out of the car I'm going to go and do it now he said look before you go it's Tony Brooks <laughs> And he was standing with Sterling Moss. I said, well, you should have told me that. Anyway, so I went, I went, I went down there. He got out of the car, Tony Brooks. I'll never forget this. He said, I want to roll up 
the trouser of my right leg. I said, well, you can do, yeah. So he did, and he showed me a small scar. He said, give me a finger. Put it He said, that bit of metal under there, that is what cut my leg. He said, that's an original car. I said, thank you very much. And uh, that was an amazing moment. Lovely, charming man. Uh, yeah, so. That's a Chris, lovely... I feel like I need to answer your question. Go on then. And I want to go to Spa. Right. In a BMW LMR V12. That would be my... Yeah. What, the, the Le Mans car? Le Mans car. Open yeah. car. Yeah, the late, the later car. Yeah. I thought you were going to say a Norma M20. Well, we did that, but that didn't work very well, did yeah, it? Yeah, we didn't finish no. that race, did we? What, what would you do i think the purest driving experience for me is on ice or on a on a ice stage you know an arctic stage with yeah. snow banks and in a, in a in a rally car i just i love that that is my mm. my final driving moment i just think it, the purity of driving experience car moving around underneath you is not to be bettered so I, i'd go there Maybe Marco Alain in a group for uh, Integrale. <laughs> or maybe, or maybe look at this. What, what's next? Stratos. Yeah, yeah, or Stratos. Stratos. Yeah, 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 yeah. The full Sandro Minari. Yeah, yeah, David, yeah. it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much. And Thank best you. Of luck with your racing this year. Thank, Thank you, you very David. much. Thanks. Thanks very much, Edward. Thank you, Chris. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.